Welcome to the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. This episode is brought to you by Guided. They help you stop employee burnout and turnover by providing great coaching for all employees so you can get out of the weeds and focus on building great culture. The best talent values learning and growth over everything else. They don't want to be managed. They want to be guided to realize their potential. So if you're ready to evolve talent development, make sure to check out getguided.co. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. Today, I have James Orsini, COO at VaynerMedia, and Vayner is a digital agency with social at its core. He works alongside founder and CEO, Gary Vaynerchuk, and helps to manage the agency for success. So welcome to the show, James. It's great to be here, Spencer. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, James, I'd love if we could start, if you could share a bit more about Vayner. Vayner's doing some really cool stuff in the social space, but not everybody is going to have heard of it and Gary V, but would love to learn a little bit more about what is VaynerMedia and what is your role there? It's funny because uh, it's a company with its roots in social, but it's doing so much more than social now as uh, we've created the the VaynerX uh, umbrella of companies, which includes a digital agency, as you had said, your traditional account creative uh, planning, yoked up with a full service uh, 300 plus person media offering that is augmented by a standalone uh, production studio in Vayner Productions, and now a digital publishing division under the Gallery Media Group, which has PureWow as the female demographic and uh, 1.37 p.m. as the male offering under that. So it's a little kingdom onto itself here. That's awesome. And Vayner Media is still a relatively new agency, but has grown massively. Can you talk a little bit about when Vayner came to be and what that growth has looked like? Yeah. Well, the company started a little over nine years ago, and Gary really got actively involved probably over the last five. I've been with him four years now. And when I got here four years ago, we were 42 million, having a little under 400 employees. And this year we'll end north of 150 million with a little more than eight employees, including our 800 employees, including our first international location in London and soon to be uh, outpost in Singapore. So James, I'd love to turn back the clock a bit and just learn a little bit more about where you grew up, what it was like growing up for you and hear that story a bit. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey, and the son of a plumber. I had a great, great family life with uh, three other siblings and myself. We were four, but I was the youngest of four by far. My oldest sister is 16 years older than me. And uh, first-generation college, uh, really, to complete the college uh, trail, if you will. I went to Seton Hall University and then uh, started in public accounting, went to work for KPMG, was an auditor there, left there, went to Wall Street for a few years, worked for Goldman Sachs, but really, really knew that, uh, you know, I wanted to do something a little closer to the creative industry. And I've spent the better part of 25 years now in the, what we call general marketing space. I started out in public relations for a company that's now uh, MSNL Group. Then I went to a branding company and Interbrand, later went to work for uh, Saatchi and Saatchi and uh, general market advertising, 
most recently before coming here to work with Gary and his brother, AJ, I was the CEO of a small publicly traded mobile media company called uh, Cedo Mobile Trades on the NASDAQ and have been here uh, just helping Gary build out his vision now for the last four years. James, I know from our previous conversation, when you left Goldman, that may be something that people do now. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people are leaving finance, especially post-financial crisis. But you left Goldman in what, the late 80s? In the late 80s, about, yeah. Can, yeah. Can you talk a bit about what that was like? Yeah, it was kind of wild. I mean, when I was at KPMG, one of my clients was a Saatchi subsidiary, a branding company called Siegel & Gale. And I remember... I remember sitting in a cubicle outside of the CEO's office and saying to myself, I I could see myself in an environment like this. I mean, this looks pretty cool. People are creating stuff. They're having a good time. I mean, they're casual, uh, you know, hardworking, but always, you know, with a bounce in their step. And I just kind of dog-eared that saying, you know, I could see myself here. I left, I went to work for Goldman Sachs, and I got a call from a guy who I used to work with at KPMG a couple of years later, and he said, hey, James, the Saatchi brothers just bought a single public relations firm in New York City, and they're going to build this worldwide company, and if you leave Goldman Sachs, I promise someday you'll be the CFO of that worldwide company. So I took the shot. You know, I trusted the guy, and I said, yeah, I'm going to come. And when I went in to resign from Goldman Sachs, uh, my then boss said, uh, what? What are you talking about? He goes, you know, first of all, nobody really resigns from here. You know, you, you sure you want to do this? Like, you're not even one of our Wharton MBAs. Like, you know, you're a two-year CPA from Newark, New Jersey, graduating from Seton Hall University. You sure you want to leave? I was actually doing well, too. And I said, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to pursue this other opportunity. He said, look, I think you're making a mistake, and I want to speak to your new boss because I'm going to tell him I think you're making a mistake. And it was like extremely awkward. I had to broker this lunch meeting between my old boss and my new boss to kind of like, you know, watch these two guys, you know, explain why this was going to be good for my career. And fast forward, you know, within five years, we did build the fifth largest public relations firm in the world. I was a global CFO before I was 30, overseeing uh, what eventually became 31 offices in 26 countries. So it was all, all good. All good. And I'm still in touch with both those guys that I had that, that famed lunch with. So I'm 30 now. I can't imagine being the CFO of a company that large, at least at that stage of a business. What was that like, stepping into that role? And what were some of the challenges? <laughs> so another continuing in the funny story saga, I remember my first international play. I started as international director of financial reporting. So they're like, all right, James, you know, we're, we're going to go now and we're going to go buy this company in Brussels. And back then it was, you know, limousine to a helicopter to a first class plane. And I was just so, you know, starry eyed and looking at everything around. And, you know, there they were, you know, firing up like, you know, lamb in the center aisle of the first class. <laughs> and my boss said, yeah, yeah, is that your passport? Yeah, let me take a look at your passport. And he's flipping through my passport. And there's like no stamps in my passport. <laughs> So he goes, Bonnie, Bonnie, Aruba. He says, what's this? I said, oh, that's where I went for my honeymoon. He said, is that the only trip you've taken? And I said, no, you know, in eighth grade, my parents took me to Disneyland. And he goes, oh, my God. He goes, I just hired you to be international director of financial reporting, and you've only been to Aruba and Florida? (laughs) 
And I said, yeah, but, you know, I'll pick up quick. So, you know, fast forward, I fall asleep in the first meeting because I'm not used to the time changes. And then learn from there, you know, and at my peak, I was, you know, pre 9-11, I was doing uh, breakfast in London, lunch in Milan and dinner in Paris on the same day, you know, was blessed to have flown the, eight, the Concorde eight times. So yeah, it just came full circle. That's funny. <laughs> I'd also love to hear about, we talked a bit about the journey that you took as publicly traded company CEO. And, you know, I just, I was really struck by the story that you told about that and just the level of challenge that that took. And because, you know what, it's not every day that I have the opportunity to interview somebody who's been in that position either. Yeah, it's sort of this a little select, you know, elite group. There just aren't many publicly traded CEOs around, you know? I mean, we see often on television, if you're watching, you know, business channels, that's all they talk about. But there just isn't that many. And I remember when I was leaving Saatchi and, and I said to myself, okay, I wanna, I'm ready to do something totally different. I don't want to go somewhere else in the industry. We all kind of do it the same way. So I was looking at some different opportunities, you know, one from a great law firm down on Wall Street. I had uh, one from PricewaterhouseCoopers at that time. And then a technology company in Encinitas, California, that was publicly traded. And I said, oh, this sounds like a good one for me. I've never been a CEO. I've never been in a publicly traded company and I don't know anything about technology. This sounds like a good job to pick. <laughs> and I remember when I was leaving, then CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, Kevin Roberts said to me, so, you know, you're going to be a CEO of a small publicly traded company. He said hey, three things. He said, one, lonely job lonely job. He said, too hard job because what gets to your desk is what no one else could figure out. And he said, and where is it trading right now? And I said, oh, it's on the bulletin board. We're going to take it up to NASDAQ. He goes, ah, you'll be asked to compromise your morals and integrity on a daily basis. <laughs> and I shook his hand. You know, it sounded a little like a Hallmark card and I left. And six months later, I remember going back to his office and saying, wow, those were deafening words. That is what I'm experiencing. It was, it was a really hard job and oftentimes lonely job. But, you know, we were successful, you know, got the company to cash flow break even 18 months ahead of schedule. And uh, the company eventually did go up to NASDAQ and still remains there today. So, you know, all of it good. I'm glad I did it. I had a three-year contract. I stood three and a half years. I learned a lot. And I think it just better positioned me um, here in working with Gary now. Well, you know, I remember sitting in another conversation recently where he was talking about that same dynamic as the CEO, that the problems that reach your desk as the CEO, it means that the answers are not in the building, right? Yeah. You don't elevate the problem if you know how to solve it. That's right. And the more people, and the more resources you have around you, the harder the decisions that get to your desk because everything else is pretty much handled. And what is coming to your desk is the stuff that others just cannot figure out, you know, or they've figured it out and they, they're not confident enough to make the decision. They haven't been properly empowered to make the decision or, you know, there's a pivot or a shift that's needed. You know, Gary's a master of that. He's an operating CEO and he's just not afraid to pivot and shift his company based on where he feels the attention of the consumer is going. I'd love to pivot back towards Vayner and hear how did the connection happen at Vayner Media? And then I'd love to hear what it's been like working alongside 
Gary and some of the lessons that you've learned along mm-hmm. the way? Yes. Yeah, so the interesting part was I sat next to Gary's brother, AJ, nine years ago at a Seton Hall University basketball game. And we were just talking and he said, you know, me and my brother and a couple guys, we started this social media firm. And, you know, that was early, early on. Most didn't even know what social media was. And I was chief operating officer at Saatchi and Saatchi at the time. And I invited him down to see what it was like when you got big. And, you know, we kind of stayed in touch. And I would like to say I provide a little mentor role for him over the years. You know, he would call me, do you know somebody who does this? How would you do this? Have you ever done that? That kind of stuff. So we stayed in touch. When I got to CEDO, I had developers in Boise, Idaho. They developed something that they thought would be right for Facebook. They asked me, who can I show this to? And I said, oh, I remember this kid. He's got a small social media firm. Let me call him up. And AJ said, yep, come on in. We're on Park Avenue. And I came in and I remember there was like 250 people there. I was like, wow, he's got a real company now. This is not just a cubicle uh, kind of thing. So when I left CETO, I called AJ up to just say, hey, I'm going to find my way back to the big advertising space. I had two job offers and I was going to take one of them. And I said, uh, you know, I'll see you around. And he's like, hey, James, have you ever met my brother Gary? And I'm like, no. He said, did you ever hear my brother Gary? I said, no. He said, okay, do a quick Google search. He won't be hard to find. But I think you should come in and meet him. And I did. And, and the meeting went well. And then we had a dinner together. And that went well. And he said at that time, you know, I, I want to build a, a $500 million independent, integrated, international communications company. You know, do you think you can help me do it? And I said, yeah, I actually think I can. So he's like, all right, well, don't take one of those other jobs. You've already been there, done that. You know, why don't you step out on a cloud and do this with me? Because I'm going to do it. I actually really just didn't know him and didn't know much of him and came to know him. But, you know, like the guy who asked me to leave Goldman Sachs, I trusted what it was that he was saying. And I often say, you know, pick a person, not a company to work for. And he looked like a good guy to pick. And the more I spoke about and of him in the marketplace to more people who knew of him and, you know, kind of felt like this was going to be a pretty good partnership going forward. And it has been, it's been great, man. He's done what he's purposed to do. And, you know, I see myself as an enabler and someone who can just help connect the dots. You know, in fact, he liked the fact that I had, you know, been in all these other disciplines, you know, the public relations, the branding, general market advertising, the mobile. So, uh, you know, he, wants to do it all. And and we are slowly approaching the ability to do it all. So yeah, it's, it's been a great run. And I've learned from him to listen a ton. I listen more than I speak. I'm learning even from working with 800 millennials, average age, you know, 27. So I've learned a ton from working with them as well. And I think they, you know, use me as, as a sounding board for not necessarily repeating how things are done in the industry, but simply understanding how things are done and then devising a way to do it better. Remember, Gary's, he's not an ad guy and that's, that's a good thing, but it's also, you know, a challenging thing as he's, you know, learning about the ins and outs of the advertising industry and applying what he does well. You know, he's a retailer, he's a seller, he's a visionary, gets a quick read of situations. He is super observant and can see patterns before most others do. So, you know, when you bring that together, that's, that's a powerful resource for client needs. You mentioned that he's a good operating CEO and a visionary. I tend to think of those things as sometimes mutually exclusive. How have you seen that he's able to do both? 
it's his clouds and dirt theory. You know what I mean? So, you know, he'll set the vision from up top, you know, in developing our course of action in the clouds. But then he'll, you know, come up with a tagline or direct the creative in the dirt because he can. So, you know, when he takes the time to understand, he affectionately calls himself a moldable dictator. And I think that that's something that I've seen. You know, he knows what he wants to do, but he accepts and oftentimes heeds advice and counsel of those around him. I mean, he's going to be the ultimate decision maker, but you can certainly speak into that decision process and, you know, perhaps affect the outcome. James, what have been your biggest lessons from working in an agency like Vayner? So average age 27, I think a couple years ago, the average age was like 25. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm skewing that age up, by the way, just so you know. Yeah, you're you're making it up a few years. And obviously places like Saatchi and Saatchi, very different type of Mm -hmm. place. So what have you learned or changed up in the last few years of leading at VaynerMedia? Yeah, so I think the industry operates from a position of fear. The advertising industry is this the day the client fires us, right? All you got to do is read Starbucks Changed My Life and you'll get a feel for what it's like in the advertising industry. And this is a company that is fearless. There's nothing that they don't believe they can't do. They're not afraid to make a mistake. It's a fail fast, fix fast, learn fast environment. It runs it like a test lab, you know, with constant testing and optimization and you know, things like that. So, you know, I think just the ability to pivot. A part of what I help him do is I have a great understanding of the black and white, whether that's finance or legal or HR. But like he, I know the game is one in the gray. And sometimes I just help him navigate that gray area. So there's no other company in this industry that I'm aware of, and I have a keen awareness of most that can move as fast as we move. One, because we're independent. Two, you know, we're not publicly traded. We're not part of a holding company. All those things unencumber us to move so much faster for our clients. And with speed, oftentimes comes efficiency. But, you know, we also know speed without control is reckless. So we're not going to be reckless. But, you know, one of the things that we talk about is rather than process, we have what we call scalable organization here that allows us you know, to be organized enough to scale in an industry that is anemically growing or shrinking. You know, this is a company that you know, went from 40 to 60 to 100 to 150 in the time that I've been here. What about some of the lessons of working with millennials? I remember we had talked about that. Yeah, so you know, I, I've dispelled a lot of the notions that were preconceived you know, self-centered, lazy, you know, I see them as as hardworking, collaborative, inquisitive, smart. I would probably say that, you know, the one thing that they do have is a sort of a semester mentality every six months, you know, what's next. And we've been working really hard to get them to, you know, anchor a little longer and master a particular area before moving on. But they're inquisitive. So they want to know, what every decision is about, but they're like sponges when it comes to learning. I mean, they will consume an enormous amount of content to properly service their clients, you know, getting a full understanding and they're super observant. So they see what's going on around them, but they're very transparent as well. So 
Uh, you know, I often laugh back in my day, you know, people didn't know what other people made. Nobody talked about their salary. That's not going to be the case here. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's a topic of lunchroom. That's not, you know, not a hush hush. So just realize that you've got to be transparent as well because they are going to be transparent. One of the things that we had talked about, so you mentioned their appetite for learning, and we talked a bit about career development, and you had mentioned a couple mentors in your life that had been really impactful. Who is the most important mentor for you, and what did you learn from that relationship? I'm of the belief that you should have different mentors to help you out. So I've had several in my life, whether it was that guy, Marty Franken, who I worked for twice in public accounting and then again in the public relations arm, or uh, Stuart Levine, the former CEO of Dale Carnegie, who became a board member at Cedo Mobile, to Gary Vaynerchuk, who's here now, you know, and then real influences, you know, like my father, my pastor. I mean, you know, real day-to-day influences that, you know, all shape the man that I've become, you know, they've all played a role in that. And I have, you know, personally penned notes to each of them over the years, telling them how much I valued the role that they've played in mentoring me. You know, one of the things I pride myself on is I am the same man wherever I am, you know, whether I'm in my home or business or, you know, my social settings, you know, any of my charities, It's great mentors like that that have helped shape that consistent man, you know, and I love to believe, you know, I have more good qualities than bad, but I'm sure, you know, I certainly have both, you know, having the good outweigh the bad and then paying it forward. That's a really important aspect of mentoring, you know, such as I have, I give to you, you got to pass that on too. Gary's really big on legacy. He's really big on legacy. You know, he wants to leave a legacy when he leaves this earth, you know wants people writing books about him and, you know, speaking highly of him. So a lot of what he does is, you know, for the long term, not a short term gain. He'll pass up a short term gain for a long term legacy play. What's been an example of when you guys have turned down something short term for a long term benefit? The guy's got a $150 million company and he's not raping the profits. (laughs) he's selling the profits back in to be a $500 million company. I think that would be the best long-term. And he'll tell you that on day one. You know what I mean? This is not a 30 plus percent margin company as it should be when independent, you know, but he is investing back in the company because his goal is for it to be a half a billion. So he's not, you know, taking, you know, immediate egregious profits off the table now has no interest in selling it to a holding company or anybody else. So, you know, that's all, short-term thinking. And I live it every day here with him. He doesn't play that way. James, two-part question. What does the future of VaynerMedia look like? And what does the future of advertising look like? So the future of VaynerMedia, Gary's going to continue to launch uh, new offerings under his VaynerX umbrella. Stay tuned. We'll have one that he and I have been working uh, alongside with coming out the second week of January. Can't really tell you but it'll be there. It's where his passion lies, you know, in smaller businesses and things like that. So we'll let that unfold for your audience. And I think the future of advertising is what I call advertainment. And it's, you know, advertising and entertainment coming together. You know, the days of pure play disruption to send me your message and the making of a single message for a mass audience is over. 
you know, it's custom messaging on individual platforms that reach individuals where they are. And you better entertain me. You better know how to storytell and, you know, and engage me because I will engage even with long content, long form content, if it's done right. So I think that's where I see the industry going. I'm curious, James, about your take on, so part of the Vayner Media and the Gary Vaynerchuk message is so much about personal growth, empowerment, self-awareness, living your best life, going for it, right? Not letting circumstances hold you back. And so that's a really positive message. I'm curious as well about the role of advertising, if any, in not necessarily like a pure consumerist approach, right? But how do we actually enrich people's lives? Because that's a big part of what Gary's about, right? Is enriching people's lives. It's not just about business growth. So this is a long question, but you know, I'm trying to understand with your thought process and the company's thought process about, is there a responsibility that the company has or a stance that the company has around advertising from a consumer standpoint? So there's a couple things in that question. One, Gary believes that we're all brands, okay? And you should take the time to define your personal brand. Now, I don't believe that he thinks every one of us should be him. That's what I respect most about Gary. He accepts people for who and what they are. And there's a role for many of them in all different types in this company, okay? They're not all mini Garys here. Two, Gary speaks to self-awareness and playing to your strengths. He feels that there's, you know, too much out there where people are fooling themselves, you know, whether that's parents fooling their children that they're more than what they are, schools, you know, fooling kids that they could teach them, you know, entrepreneurialism (laughs) rather than have it being birthed inside you. So, you know, knowing where your strengths are and playing to those strengths and not necessarily, you know, playing up or spending a ton of time on on trying to overcome really innate weaknesses, right? So, because he values time, right? So he values, I don't think he sees any greater commodity than time. And he makes the best use of his time. You know, people ask me all the time, does he sleep? I'm like, yeah, he definitely sleeps. But he just does more than when he's awake than any other human I've ever seen. So, you know, and the documentation is there to show it, right? Constantly followed around, so he's documented his whole life. But, you know, advertising does play a role. Look, it's, you know, all these great technologies and platforms and what have you, they can't make money until they revert to a 150-year-old model of advertising, right? That's how they all make money. So advertising isn't going anywhere. You know, it's just, it needs to evolve. And that's where the industry is stuck in its ways. It just needs to evolve. So, you know, people are like, well, he doesn't believe in television. No, we believe in television. You know, we do television commercials here. He thinks the Super Bowl is underpriced based on the number of eyeballs that it has it, based on the fact that people talk about it the week before, people gather around it the day of, people talk about it the week after. Like, that's a good use of television spent money, you know. may not be around, you know, a sitcom or something like that. You know, he also believes that, you got to advertise for the year in which you're in, right? So when there was only television or magazine, you know, it was very finite. I have 30 seconds. I have to perfect this commercial. There's only 30 seconds to tell the story or there's only 60 pages in the magazine. The page of the magazine has to be perfect. And the internet is limitless, 
right? So you should be putting out as much content as possible and getting your advertising message out there and doubling down on the stuff that's working and pulling back on the stuff that isn't. But realize the internet is limitless. Just keep going. Mm -hmm. I love that. So James, as we start to wrap up, I'm curious about when you think of from a challenge standpoint, what is the biggest challenge on James's plate at the moment? You know, I tell people all the time, how do we not become what it is that we're making fun of, right? As you serve as a Fortune 100 client base, uh, you know, who have other agencies there, who have procurement departments that have been in place, who have, you know, a disdain sometimes for what's going on and lack of transparency on platforms and media, you know, how do you not get swept up in that? You know, we constantly position ourselves as the alternative, as the disruptor in the space, you know, as the one that's willing to kind of speak the truth. I've seen them give money back, you know, because either a client was unhappy or, you know, or he was unpleased with, you know, how things turned out. So, you know, we just want to be fair and reasonable with our clients, but we're relatively certain that we are bringing serious value to what it is that they do. And in this space, there's just simply not many that can produce the volume of content at the speed and the price that we can do it because of what he has under, under this uh, VaynerX umbrella of companies. James, anything else that you'd like to share as we wrap up here? Look, the purpose at work and, you know, I think you got a purpose to be successful. You can't look in the rearview mirror and say, how did I do? You really need to be looking out of the dashboard and say, what am I, what am I purposing to do? to be successful at work and in my career and in this industry. And that's, that's what I do personally. And that's what we do here at VaynerMedia. What do you feel is your purpose, James, as a person? My purpose now has moved, you know, at 55, I think my purpose is to make sure that my family is healthy, happy, and uh, funded. (laughs) And my purpose is to give back to others because, you know, I've been really fortunate and blessed about a wonderful career that's uh, nowhere near over. But I've learned a lot. I've met a lot of good people along the way. I've worked for a lot of great companies. I left every company for the most part on great terms and still can pick up my cell phone and talk to every boss I've ever had, ever had. I still have them in my cell phone and, you know, oftentimes do. I had dinner with an ex-boss just uh, Saturday night and his wife. So, you know, a purpose to set an example of a good, a good businessman. You know, James, we've been getting to know each other a little bit. And one thing I want to say is I just appreciate your approach to connecting and storytelling. And there's something really nice about how down to earth it is, considering a lot of the cool things that you've been able to do. And it is really abundantly clear, the focus on giving back. And you've been able to do some really cool stuff in your career. And, you know, it sounds like the amount of charitable work and mentorship and just trying to contribute that you're focused on doing at this point is is really admirable and you know that's not something that everybody does so i wanted to call that out i appreciate that yeah i mean you have to purpose to do that as well so and for me life has become much more fulfilling because of that purpose so i appreciate that i hope your audience gets that too yeah and James, what is the best way for people to follow your work or stay in touch? Yeah, so I am at Jimmy the Pencil on Twitter. I am uh, James Orsini on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Snapchat. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. 